the demographic that matters financially, people, you can, there are people who take offense to a statement like this, but just financially it's true. The money that comes into the system that you need, it's 18 to 34 year olds. So it's like, I'm 50. And it's like, you're trying to get me to, like, I've got to explain to my kids that they're supposed to behave in a certain way with their media because it's the way their grandparents behaved. It's, it's stupid. And of course it doesn't work. But the problem is we haven't figured out what does work yet. And so you're in this zone where there's, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of change. It's very difficult to finance independently right now, you know, because nobody knows what the baseline scenarios are. You can't predict the downside, which is what you build your financial model on. So that's, that's really, really challenging. At the same time, you know, I look at what's happening creatively right now, and I don't know, maybe it's the old kind of punk rock ethos in me, but it's like, political conflict reads good art. Yep. And creatively right now, like I look at our slate right now, and I fucking love it. Really biased, but like I really like the films that we're working on right now. And I look at the other scenes that are out there and other people that are working, and you know, everybody is fighting really, really hard to get anything made at all. The day I watched In Flames, I emailed Todd Brown, head of international acquisition for XYZ Films, and my guest today. I asked him, how did this masterpiece get to viewers? Well, Todd tells me in this episode. And guess what? He fucking loves his slate of films, so there's more great indie films to come. Welcome to First Time Go. I'm Benjamin Duchek. Let's celebrate great films. Today, Todd Brown, head of international acquisitions for X, Y, and Z Films, founder and editor of the international film website, Screen Anarchy. Todd, how are you today? Very good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. <laughs> well, I'm so thrilled to have you on here. I do love having filmmakers who are on to pitch a film, but I've never had a filmmaker on who just like had made their film and then was like, Ben, you want to talk about it? So there always had to be someone who was sort of screening somebody who said like, hey, this is great before it gets you know, up for public review. So you play a very important part in the process and I'm really excited to have you here today. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a complicated hidden world that, that you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes that people don't see commonly. And it, honestly, it's a thing that I fell into. I, I, I joke a lot and it's not really a joke that my career is an accident. This is not by training. It is not a plan. It's it's just a thing that happened. Interesting. So what what thing happened that led you into filmmaking, Todd? I mean, I'm I'm basically a hobbyist whose hobby took over his life. And through through most of my life I always I had things that were running in parallel. I had the things that I was doing because they were the expected things and the responsible things and the things that I felt that I should do. And then I had the things that I did because I just loved them. And I thought they were interesting. And for me in high school, that was me coming up in like punk rock zine culture and, and writing about music. And over time, that gradually transitioned into me writing about film, which I was really just doing for me because I was a film geek and I had a friend who had launched a website and that turned into me launching my own thing. And I just hit a niche that nobody else was talking about which pretty quickly led to some festivals reaching out, asking for help finding films that I was writing about, which quickly turned into them asking if I just wanted to join the program teams. 
<laughs> which of course I did. It's fun. <laughs> and in doing that, I met the people who are now my business partners and, and the people who went on to found XYZ. So I've, where I've been for 15 years now. Wow. That's wild. So do you feel like though, there had to be some baseline of talent, right? Like people wouldn't be reaching out to you if you weren't a great writer or had like a great eye for film. Like there's some baseline there, right? Of quality that you feel like yeah. had to be there. I think for you to I make think it. for me, there's a, there's a couple things. One, I was really fortunate in, in kind of my school years where I had some teachers who got through to me pretty early who I don't think, I don't even know if they were aware that what they were doing was media studies then. But I had some people who were really, really smart about breaking down thematic stuff and, and really encouraging you to shift your perspective on how you looked at things. I mean, it really, it really opened my brain. In, in some interesting ways. And then from reviewing for as long as I did and programming festivals is when you look at it from a certain way, it's, it is a training ground. And I found the first year, year and a half, at least of me programming festivals, I found it really intensely stressful to sit and watch a movie that I had programmed with an audience. I didn't enjoy it at all because I was so keenly aware how the audience was reacting to the thing and really, really aware that that whole room of people was there and had spent money because I told them to watch a thing that otherwise they probably would never have heard of. And so there, there was like this real feedback loop that forced me to really kind of like really hone it down. And then, in, yeah, and in the early days, kind of the beginning, what, what is now Screen Anarchy when it was launched was called Twitch. It's not the video game streaming site, which is why it's no longer called Twitch. But I, I hit a niche that nobody else was talking about and, and built a reputation pretty quickly for being a little bit ahead of the curve, you know, and I realized what was happening and I still find it really strange, but in kind of the early days of like the Japanese horror movement and all of those remakes that were coming out, there was a big LA Times profile on Roy Lee who produced, you know, the American version of The Ring, the American version of The Grudge. And after The Ring they did this profile piece and they, they asked him directly, like, how are you finding these things? And he goes, oh, it's easy. I read Twitch. And <laughs> yeah, that was a real, oh, that's weird moment for me where he started to understand that what I was doing for myself was having impacts that I had not planned on. I've never thought of it that way, but that sounds so obvious now that film festivals sort of are a proving ground for acquisitions because you're seeing it in real time. Like, you know, you're not dealing with the, like, say, North American audience, but you're dealing with an audience probably more sophisticated than the regular viewer, but it gives you, like, instant feedback. Have you found, like, a lot of colleagues have come from that yeah. route, like they prove themselves at festivals? Yes. Yeah, there, there is a lot of that. You see a lot of festival programmers that end up in acquisitions. And I'm also seeing a lot of kind of early stage bloggers that have ended up in that world. So So people that I would consider contemporary to me. And people that very much we came up in the same wave, like Ryan Turek, who was, I'm going to get it wrong. But of the big horror sites, right. when I started, you know, you had Bloody Disgusting, you had Shock Till You Drop. Oh, my God, I'm going to completely blank on the third one. But those three guys were Brad Miska, Ryan Turek, and Sam Zimmerman. Brad is now leading acquisitions for Cynodyne. Ryan is the head of development for Blumhouse. And Sam is... 
not sure what his exact title is, but he's acquisitions and development and kind of talent development at Shutter. You know, like all of those guys got plucked out pretty quickly. And I think yeah. it is a thing. The world's, a, it's a different world now in just the way online works. You don't have as many people that are writing long form anymore as there were when I was doing it. But certainly in that time, the people that showed that they had an eye for talent and could break down why a story worked or didn't work, you know, if they could combine that with even a little bit of understanding of market forces and, and a willingness to learn and adapt in that space, yeah, a lot of us got snapped up. That's so wild. I had never thought of it that way. So would you say that you have a philosophy on films that you like? Like, could filmmaker be out there and say, yeah, I think Todd Brown will like this because it has X, Y, or Z elements? Or um, do you find yourself liking all, a wide range, can't pigeonhole it that way? I, I do have a pretty wide range in my own tastes. You know, I think in the early days of the website, part of what made me stand out specifically, I think, is I took, I figured out what I was doing as I was doing it. But I, I kind of took a stance where I object on a base level to the idea that there's this line that people like to draw between kind of pop culture and high culture, you know, and the idea that, you know, serious drama is somehow more meaningful or more inherently valuable than genre film is. I don't think that's true. And so in the early days for me, like my introduction to international film and, and the things that really kind of lit my fire and got me interested on one pole, it was John Woo and Jackie Chan and Jet Li. And on the other pole, it was Lars von Trier and the Dogma 95 movement. And to me, those things are equivalent and they make sense together. You know, so that's, that is a thing, you know, I'd say I'm, I'm fairly restless you know, I'm not afraid or or bothered by somebody who's working a formula if they're working the formula well. You know, there's certain right. like old millennium action films like the Scott Adkins, uh, Isaac Florentine pairing at, at Millennium. Exactly. Those, those guys do that as well as you can possibly do it. And I love those films and, and continue to love those films and people that are kind of contemporary working in that space. But, you know, I'm for me, the biggest question that I'm asking when I'm reading a script is less, is it a new idea and more, does this person have a really distinct POV on it? Why does this story matter to them? And how is it reflecting what's going on in the world? And sometimes I'm consciously aware of it. A lot of the time I'm not really until you come after come through a period and you look back and you realize that there's a pattern that's emerged you know two summers ago at fantasia we had a number of films that played there the big genre festival in montreal and and coming out of that festival entertainment weekly ran you know a spotlight article on the rise of queer horror and they focused on five films as being representative of that movement and kind of that article came out and we read it and we we're just like oh shit four of those were involved with somehow in, in different branches of the company. And it was literally never a conversation we ever had. It was never a target. It was never a thing. We just, there's something really resonant right now in, about the conversations that people are having and the way that horror tropes and horror genre can interact with questions about identity and belonging that it was just appealing to us. And we, we like none of us were consciously doing it. None of us were consciously aware that it had happened 
until we kind of came out the other side of it and somebody else pointed it out and we were like, oh shit, that was a thing. You know, though there, there, there are other areas that we've been pretty consciously aware of and trying to move into. Like we've done a pretty good number of really strong genre films that are coming out of the indigenous communities, both kind of Canada, America, New Zealand in particular. And that's very much on purpose. That, that, that is a thing that we have talked about very specifically. Amazing. I love the films that I've seen from XYZ and I look forward to talking with you about it. I am interested though, before going there of your ideas about the state of independent film. I think, I don't know which airline you fly, but I imagine you have like the platinum diamond status. Cause I think as we were setting this up, you were going to Sundance, you were going over to Germany, you're going all around the world. Can you talk a little bit about how you feel as we record in the beginning of 2024 about the state? Of independent film? I mean, there's so many angles to come at that. Years ago, like at the beginning of XYZ, we were right as physical home video was collapsing. You know, kind of that, that DVD rental market and all of that and that way of doing film and, and the economics of that and how it supported filmmakers and, and the industry as a whole. And if you had asked me at that time, I would have said, I feel like, and I did say to people, fairly regularly. I feel like we're like halfway, two thirds of the way through a paradigm shift and then things will level and find the new normal. And I look back on that now and I just, it just makes me laugh at how blissfully ignorant I was. <laughs> the, the paradigm is not, has not stopped shifting and it's not going to stop shifting. And in certain ways, it makes a lot of stuff much more difficult. And in other ways, I mean, it's weird to talk about myself as being an optimist because I feel like I'm the guy who shows up on panels and tends to talk shit a lot. But there are certain trends in in the audience and in demographics and what I'm seeing in my own children that makes me incredibly hopeful of of what is coming. But the underlying economics of the system right now, we're still living with the vestiges of that system that was created in the, those physical home video days and the windowing that was brought in and the laws and the rules that were brought in at that time. And that is realistically, that is a system that was created for my parents in my parents' generation and matches the way that they interacted with media. Whereas the demographic that matters financially, and people, you can... There are people who take offense to a statement like this, but just financially, it's true. The money that comes into the system that you need, it's 18 to 34-year-olds. So it's like, I'm 50, and it's like, you're trying to get me to, like, I've got to explain to my kids that they're supposed to behave in a certain way with their media because it's the way their grandparents behaved. It's, it's stupid. And of course, it doesn't work. But the problem is we haven't figured out what does work yet. And so you're in this zone where there's... There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of change. It's very difficult to finance independently right now, you know, because nobody knows what the baseline scenarios are. You can't predict the downside, which is what you build your financial model on. So that's, that's really, really challenging. At the same time, you know, I look at what's happening creatively right now, and I don't know, maybe it's the old kind of punk rock ethos in me, but it's like political conflict breeds good art. Yep. Um, and creatively right now, like I look at our slate right now and I fucking love it. Really biased, but like I really like the films that we're working on right now. And I look at the other scenes that are out there and other people that are working 
and you know everybody is fighting really really hard to get anything made at all and everybody's exhausted at the end of it but then you see the results of it and i think there's a really really vibrant interesting community and i think we're also right on the cusp of a really significant change because all of the kids who grew up in a YouTube world and grew up with this ethos of, oh, don't ask anybody if you can make a thing, just go make the thing. You know, they're all walking around with 4K cameras in their pockets right now because the phones are so good. They're, they're all learning how to use Blender. They all have good edit software available to them. And, you know, an easy thing to point to out of that world, like something like Talk to Me, the Australian horror film that did just gonzo for A24 this past year. And that movie's brilliant. Those YouTube kids, they didn't go to film school. They started off making making wrestling videos in their backyard. They're they're completely self-taught. They they are, had the fortune of being in a country with a good government agency that recognized them early and made professional training available to them and surrounded them with smart smart people. But but Danny and Michael are just they're a couple of kids who just started shooting goofy videos on their phone you know, and learn how to do it. And then the American context, you look at people like Freddie Wong, you know, who I remember watching old rocket jump videos with my kid when my son was like 11 or 12. Freddie's got a feature at South by Southwest this year. He's another guy who's just self-taught guy who's just crazy talented. And he's not going to wait for a gatekeeper to tell him what he can and can't do. And I love that. I think it's fantastic. I love it too. And maybe I'm looking for a hot take here, Todd, although I don't think it's pretty hot to say that film school might just be about the connections. But do you feel like as we evolve where people are constantly making films at film school? Yeah. Um, like just who you know rather than the- – there's, there's, there's a lot of debate around that. I mean, and I will say kind of anything like film. Certainly I would say anytime you're talking about film as a medium – there's the whole conversation about the intersection of art and commerce. But the nature of the medium, if, if what you're trying to do is be kind of the singular solo vision artist, film is arguably the wrong medium for you because it just takes way too many people. <laughs> it's it's exactly. far more collaborative a process than that. And so the importance of finding your people, you know, that's that's a huge thing. And that is a deeply important thing for film school. You know, I think I think it's also valuable, assuming you're in a good one and you have good profs, being around people who are more experienced, who will call you on your bullshit, both personality wise and creative decision wise is incredibly important when you're young and you're developing. You, you, you need some gut check, reality check stuff from time to time. Everybody needs that. You know, technique depends on who you are. I think a lot of that stuff now you can learn yourself and the, the level of discourse that's out there. I would say film school is intensely important for producers. Interesting. You know, to actually understand how you run a budget, the way the unions work, right. the way your costs are, how to, how to structure a shoot, how to board a shoot. You know, those things are much harder to just absorb. And there's the whole legal side of filmmaking and what it what it takes to actually deliver a movie, you know, in a way that makes it releasable legally. There's a lot there. And and you're not likely to pick that up by chance. So I, I think on that side, there's there's a level of rigor that's really important and can be a real challenge for people as they're starting. Right. Because you're probably you might be more likely to take a chance on like a first time director 
who may, you know, you may be able to coach them up on certain things. But if somebody's never dealt with like a, you know, few million dollar budget, you're not probably going to transfer just a yeah, bunch of money over and be like, country. good luck. <laughs> yeah. And the way that happens kind of country by country is, is, is really different. Like, like I, XYZ obviously is an American company, but I'm Canadian and I've stayed on this side of the border. I, I, I live just outside of Toronto. You know, and in the Canadian industry, if you're using like the national funding body, telephone, you know, and you're a young producer coming up, you know, that first time you come in and they're writing you a check, they will require you to have a more senior executive producer on it who's going to make sure that your budgets are set and, and that has these plans in place. And they are, they are going to force you to have kind of a coach mentor on your team. And you have to do at least two feature films that way before they will even allow you to apply solo. You know, where in the American side of things, I mean, it's much more common, kind of a young indie, like, like we literally quite regularly have films come to us where it's like somebody's done it super cheap and paid for it on their credit cards. <laughs> Sometimes people mortgage their homes. Wow. For the record, don't do that. <laughs> Seriously, do not do that. It's, I... <laughs> I've seen I've seen credit card movies work out. I honestly don't. I'm trying to think of people that I know who have done the home mortgage thing and actually been made whole at the end of it. And wow. I don't I don't think I can name one. <laughs> I know they exist, uh, but I don't I don't I don't think we've seen it directly. They, they might like, be homeless. Some great now. creative films get made now, that John. way, but it's you're courting disaster if you do that. Right. Well, that's a perfect segue to my next question. So you're head of international acquisitions. How do you view the international market? So I've interviewed two of the international films put up for the Oscars, and I absolutely love them. And it just makes me think like there's 150 other films that were put out by the different countries. And and, yeah, that, and lot, that's not even considering all the other ones that they are. I mean, that's the one that they promoted. So what is your view of the international market? Do you feel like we're going to eventually get to a time where it's just global cinema or is it a good way to highlight international films that aren't yeah seen? again this 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 comes back to like what i was saying about kind of constant paradigm shift and, and the generational change that's coming and some of what i'm about to say is very anecdotal and just me watching kind of around home and i, I use my kids as a test market all the time and they're they're 18 and 22 now perfect and but there is also some data that's coming out to support this I am increasingly convinced that when you talk about kind of that 18 to 34-year-old demographic and the way they're engaging with things, they are the most media-engaged generation there's ever been, and they are the most globally-engaged generation there has ever been. And I think it's hard to put a line exactly where the line is, but it's certainly within Gen Z, and I think some young millennials, I think the line is somewhere between 20, like right around 20. Because I can see a difference between my 18-year-old and my 22-year-old in this. But those kids who grew up fully on social media, went from YouTube to Instagram to Snap to TikTok now, the subtitle barrier literally doesn't exist for them. And, and I think it all comes down to, to just their phones and, and right. social media. Like They've spent their entire lives with global content being available to them. And they've spent their entire lives on platforms that the serious creators caption everything and so like kind of on the personal level on on my and where i really started to think about this is i realized when my daughter rory was about 15 
I could tell where she was watching TV in the house all the time because she was turning the subtitles on for literally everything. And for context there, like her taste, my, my daughter is enormously mainstream. If it was my son doing this, if Will were doing it, I wouldn't have thought much of it because he's like me. They're a, a really deliberate obscurist. Rory's favorite things on the planet are the Fast and the Furious movies and the Marvel movies and pretty much literally anything where Ryan Reynolds takes his shirt off. You know, Rory took me to the cinema to see Top Gun because she had read about the volleyball scene and she wanted to see a bunch of super hot dudes shirtless <laughs> on a beach. It's the whole reason we went to see that film. But I could tell always because she was just turning it on and I realized all of her friends were doing it. And, and I asked her about it. She's like, well, it just makes it easier to read the story, to understand the story. And I realized because of the way she has interacted with media her whole life, when Rory is watching film now, her principal means of absorbing story is the text because that's how social media trains you. And the audio is actually a supplement where for every other generation, it's been the other way around and people were just like, what are these words on the bottom of my screen? This is annoying. Right. And, you know, kind of anecdotally, you could see it in her, in her friends and that. And just relatively recently, I saw a university study that came out where somebody actually looked into this and they put the line older than where I would put it. They looked at Gen Z and millennials as a whole together. But within that cohort, they found 62% of people watch everything subtitled. And it's spreading. Like, we have picked this up from, from Rory because it actually does make it easier. It does exactly. make it to better. To see what you're hearing and, and seeing, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. And so that was kind of a curiosity piece more than anything. And then I started thinking about, you know, you look at what's happening on the streamers and on the platforms, right? Like that generation where I tend to put the line, they're just coming into that disposable income demographic, right? Like they're, they're just at the bottom edge of it right now. But you think about it in the way, like you can see the behavior being exhibited on streaming platforms because mom and dad are already paying for it. And like, we are so far past the point of stuff like Squid Game being unusual and surprising anymore. You know, like shows right. going internationally viral like that. And that's just a thing that happens all the time now. Like at least three or four really big ones every year. And when you ask yourself, how does that actually happen practically in real life? You know, old media, traditional media would have all been P&A spend and people laying out big advertising money. Netflix doesn't do that. Netflix only actually promotes the content in its country of origin. And then for everything else, it's just left to the algorithm. So when you think about like, how did Squid Game happen? The actual answer to that is they dropped it. Algorithm maybe did a little bit of tickling. But 15-year-olds found it and started talking about it on TikTok, you know, and it spread virally between 15-year-olds on social media platforms. And then our generation, all the parents found out about it from their kids. It was a completely natural, organic thing. It, to me, that's fascinating. And I think completely. What's, I think what's going to happen moving forward, I think everybody always is going to start with the stuff that's the most familiar and the stuff that looks and feels the most like them, just because welcome to being human. Right. You know, you, you start with the stuff that's comfortable and familiar, but if they can't find something like that, they're just looking for stuff that's good. And Completely. Yeah. So I, I really believe now when you look at, you know, even the success of stuff like Parasite, the platform, which is a, a Spanish film that we were, we were involved in, 
you know, a movie like Troll that that Netflix made globally. The limiting factor now, it's not the language, it's the actual content. And I would even point to something, even though it's English language, I would point to the success of something like Talk to Me and why that movie worked so well. Because while it's English, it's really Australian. And I don't know if you've seen it, but like the opening sequence is the hardest, thickest accents of the entire film. You know, there's no stars. There's literally nobody that anybody knows in that film, even in Australia. And that wouldn't have worked, you know, five years ago. And I think the reason it does work now, and I honestly, I sincerely believe it. We're, we're not involved in that film in any way. I would love to have been. I think you could teach Talk to Me in film schools. I think Talk to Me for my kids' generation is what Evil Dead was for my generation. And the reason it works is because Danny and Michael are so much of that generation. I swear that is the best representation of current youth culture I have ever seen on screen. Every one of those kids is just right. And so kids everywhere see that film and they're, and they're seeing themselves on screen in a way that they haven't before, even though the accent is different and they just don't care about the accent being different because they're just like, yep, that's me. That's my friends. That's, that's how we behave. And they, and they responded to it incredibly organically and it had an amazing trailer, but, (laughs) but, but I think that level of authenticity was incredibly important. I love your optimism, and I feel that way too, especially about international films continuing to meld its way into this form of global cinema. And I don't know what that looks like, but it's I think over the next 10 years, it's just going to become natural to refer to different films around the world as just great films yeah. rather than like where they're from. Yeah, I think, I think we got a couple more years of the, the larger scale business being pretty spooky. We've, <laughs> we've definitely moved into the years of consolidation and, and kind of contraction after all of this kind of massive growth of platforms. I mean, most of them clearly don't work as functioning businesses, you know, but, but they occupy a really important part of the value chain when you're releasing a film and, and, and trying to generate revenue from it. So contraction is going to be hard for a lot of people. And it looks like Paramount is going to be the next one to go. So that's going to be really, really difficult. And, and figuring out what is the model and how do you get to the audience is going to be a challenge. But the audience itself, I think, is incredibly healthy and incredibly engaged. And I, as long as, as creators, you can try to focus as much as you can possibly get away with it on the idea that the important relationship, the most important relationship is the connection from creator to audience. And all the rest of it is necessary evil. And you try to not lock yourself into one particular business model because that's the way it's done. You know, these next few years, people in finance and production are going to have to continue to be really, really flexible and adaptable and shift and think on their feet. And I think being nimble is going to be really rewarded and really essential. But I'm not worried about the long-term health of things because you know people want story yeah people are all watching films like you said like your kids are watching films all day it may be like two two minute films it may be tiktok reels but that's still somebody had to edit it somebody had to shoot it i mean it's the basics of film and it's more popular than ever before so completely agree with you todd so this is a perfect segue to talk about x y and z so do you feel like you want people to know okay there's an xyz film 
or are you sort of genre agnostic? Do you want it to just be whatever's great? You publish? no, we're not. We're, we're definitely not genre agnostic. You know, and we we just had all of our this year kind of strategic planning and goal setting and on all of those things meetings about like three weeks ago. So we are actually in this year trying to be a little tighter and more focused. Historically, I would say we we have always been very much a genre oriented company. It's it's a place we know, it's a place we love, I think, approach smartly. You know, genre is a framework for allegory. There's literally nothing you would want to talk about topic-wise in a serious drama that you can't do in genre. And I would say, in most cases, that you can't do much more entertainingly in genre. You know, so we like that space. I tend to follow that statement by saying when I say that we're a genre company, it doesn't mean we're a horror company. Because we're not bound that way. We definitely do horror films. But, you know, our initial reputation was based off of the Raid films. Those were the first really big successes that we had, which were martial arts movies out of Indonesia. We do a lot of thrillers. We're always looking for smart sci-fi. We're, you know, we're pushing those bounds into all kinds of different areas. And typically, we're, we're wanting to work in spaces where things are being driven by really high-end, smart, distinctive directors. You know, festivals play a large, important role. In, in what we do. So we're, we're making the kinds of genre film that you pretty consistently see in like the midnight lineup at Toronto or Sundance. You know, we're in directors Fortnite and can pretty regularly, you know, places like that. And then from time to time, and in this last couple, last couple of years, we've done a few of these. Every now and then an opportunity will show up where we're like, okay, that's outside of brand, but we just like it. So why not? So like last year we did Blackberry, which, you know, it's not a genre film in any way. It's a, it's a tech biopic, but it's a director that we'd worked with a couple of times. His energy meshes with us really well. We're, and we're just like, this is just a really good story and a really good script. And the and business side of it movie. made sense. Yeah. You know, we're really proud of that. We did, we did Adam McGoyan's next film, who is totally a pure prestige art house guy. But again, I would say as a Canadian, if you were to draw a list of the best five Canadian films ever made, and Adam Agoyan's Sweet Hereafter is not on that list, you, your list is wrong. Right. You know, he is, he is an all-time great. When, and, you know, he, he really came into this saying, like, he really wanted something that got back to his roots and back to that period of his work, which was super exciting to us. And it came to us from a producer who we really like and have had good experiences working with in the past. And we're just like, you know what? This is unusual for us, but why not? This is a, a brilliant filmmaker who we'd be proud to have our logo on one of his films. So if he'll have us, we'll have him, sort of thing. But I'd say at least kind of 85, 90% of what we do is going to be in that genre space. We're, we're harder to peg than a Blumhouse is, probably a little bit harder to peg than an A24 is, but we're more like A24 than we are like Blumhouse. And I say this with nothing, like, honestly, legitimately nothing but love for Blumhouse. They're spectacularly right. good at what they do. It's just not the same thing that we do. I think I, I watched In Flames. I think I emailed you the day I watched that because it was so amazing. So when I did my research for it, it was like, oh, it's a horror film. So I'm like, all right, I know what to expect. And it was something completely different than what I expected. It was brilliant. It was deep. It was a film that you had to watch a couple times to be able to fully understand. And it's just like blew me away about like 
your ability to, like you said, work with great directors. So that, if that's like sort of the calling card of the kind of films that you produce, it's just, it's just wildly. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really, really proud of our involvement in my film. And thank you so much for bringing it up. It's a challenging one in terms of where it lives in distribution, right? It's, it's, it occupies an unusual space, you know, and it's something that honestly I stumbled across by accident. You know, I, I was aware of the director from, from some of his shorts films previously, but had never met. And, you know, being where I am, the Canadian Film Center asks me to come in and talk to director and producer cohorts pretty regularly. And they just, they were just like, look, we've got this script. Can you read the script? I said, sure. Because I, I say yes to all of their stuff every time, pretty literally. And I got about 15 pages into that script and I immediately started messaging everybody else from work. And I mean, I probably could find text on my phone, but it was literally just, oh my God, I just found the next Babak and Bari. I just found the next Under the Shadow you know, which was a Farsi language horror film that we did several years ago now. That was at Sundays. Yeah, and Zarar lived up to that. You know, and we also came across it right at the time we were starting to have a conversation about wanting to launch a new little initiative within the company specifically for first and second features and make sure that we were creating a really conscious space for that to live. You know, and yeah, so In Flames was the launch title of that, of our new Visions slate. You know, and we launched in Cannes with like being in selection in Directors Fortnite, which, you know, yay us. Right. And it was the first time a film from Pakistan had gotten that honor. It's just an amazing film. I feel like such an asshole because I don't think people can go stream it yet. I think it's streaming later. On. Not yet, but very soon. Okay. Great. Um, <laughs> I want to say, I want to say April. It okay. might be the end of March, but the commercial release in North America is coming up. It absolutely is coming out in America. Okay, awesome. Because I kind of feel like a jerk, right? This guy is sitting here talking about how much he loves his film, but you can't see it. It's like, okay, thanks, man. Like that That's not fun, but definitely encourage people to go out and see that as soon as it comes out. I had the same reaction. I'm like, this is fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about the slate? Like, are we going to see another film at Cannes? from the lineup or how, how is that slate looking? I mean, can this year, I can't, I don't know yet because they haven't right. made their decisions. We are, we are actively pitching them right now in terms of what that slate is, you know, it came about for a few reasons, but the really short version of it is, you know, when XYZ was founded 15 years ago, there were the three initial founders. And then I formally joined about six months in, although myself and one of the founders were already working collaboratively on other things before that. And we didn't have big, we didn't have any financial backing. You know, we, we weren't in that sort of situation. We didn't have, you know, like a Megan Ellison sitting behind us. So our, our one asset was that we knew talent and we knew people that were really good. And, you know, kind of by default, the identity of the company and the strategy of the company was we're going to find really interesting young talent right at the beginning of their career. We're going to bank on them and bet on them and then help them grow smartly and strategically. And, you know, so that's where we started and, and where we ended up was with people like Gareth Evans, who made the Raid films and Aaron Moorhead, Justin Benson. You know, we worked with them. They, were, they are one of the people who self-funded their film on their own credit cards. Uh, that movie was called Resolution. But not they're their now, house. <laughs> yeah, not their house. But they're now like go-to directors for Marvel. They did, you know, half of season two of Loki. They did half of Moon Knight. They're, they're doing Daredevil right now. 
you know, Panos Cosmatos, we worked with on Beyond the Black Rainbow before he did Mandy. We worked on Mandy. You know, so that plan worked really well and really proud of that growth pattern. But, you know, everything comes with cost, including success. And I realized one of the things that's happening is, okay, if we're working with those guys now, we've gone from doing the small movies to now doing movies at the core of the slate as it existed at the time, were budgets that were ranging between five and 15 million. And let's say you got a slate like that, and then you find somebody like Zarar in a film like In Flames. And if you're in a sales market, you're in your office in Berlin, or you're in your office in Cannes, and a distributor comes in because they want to talk about this like $12 million cast-driven movie, you can't turn to that distributor and say, can we introduce you in this tiny budget Urdu language Pakistani film? <laughs> because you can't. <laughs> like They're not interested. They're the wrong buyer for that. And so I was becoming concerned with the idea that as much as we love the success of the company, that it was pulling us, we were at risk of being pulled away from our roots and away from our identity. And I just didn't like that. And so I brought it to the other guys and said, look, I don't want to, you know, it creates frustration if I go to our sales team and try to wedge these smaller things in. And that's not good for them. It's not good for me. And it's not good for the film. And so what I would like to do is kind of create a space just for them. And it's not a sub-label. We don't like that language. It's, it's a whole parallel slate. Like it's sharing resources on our marketing and delivery side and kind of all the back office stuff. But we hired a dedicated sales exec for it. That's all she's doing is those titles. Her name is Manon. She's awesome. And we built a slate just out of that. And so in that first year, yeah, we had In Flames. We had a Czech science fiction film called Restore Point. That went to the Karlovy Vary Festival, which is the biggest A festival in Eastern Europe. It's up for eight Czech Lion Awards right now. They're equivalent to the Oscars. That's coming out in America. It's in February. Our own distribution arm is doing that. We had a little Irish folk horror called All You Need Is Death. That's just finishing its, its festival run right now. Really, really proud of that film. It's weird. But the director's initial pitch to me was he wanted to make a movie that felt like early Ben Wheatley meets <laughs> Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Wow. I'm like, that makes no sense, but I love that. <laughs> and he hit it. He hit it exactly. It does exactly what he said he wanted it to do. So I think that that's a movie that the audience that will appreciate that fusion is admittedly a small audience, but the people who get it are going to love it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's things like that. And then coming up, yeah, we do have a number of things that I'm, I'm really, really proud of. Off of that slate, in the midnight section at South by Southwest this year, we have a film called Cryptic, which is the debut from a woman named Courtney Roy. Really lynchy, psychosexual thriller. Kind of in tone, I'd say it, it lives in a zone somewhere between season one, Twin Peaks, and Blue Velvet. Cool. Um, and, it's, and it's a time-looping creature feature. <laughs> you know, Courtney's really cool. We are in, we're about slightly less than two weeks away from Pitcher Lock on a film called The Well, which is a Canadian eco-thriller. The director on that is a, is a really under underappreciated gem. It's amazing to me that he hasn't made a narrative film until now. His name is Hubert Davis. Hubert's dad was a Harlem Globetrotter. Wow. And he did like a short half-hour documentary about that in the early 2000s, I think in 2000. It was either 2004 or 2005. I, I would need to double check that date. It may not be quite that far back, but it's called Hardwood. Uh, it was funded by the National Film Board of Canada. And that doc was both Oscar and Emmy nominated. 
Wow. And Hebert kind of lived in kind of documentary short form for a little while after that. He made one documentary feature two years ago, three years ago now, called Black Ice, which is about racism in hockey culture. I love that. that. Won the, I love that. That won the Audience Award at the Toronto Film Festival. And he's wanted to be a narrative for a really long time, and he never had an opportunity until now. And his producer on that is somebody I've known for a long time. The screenwriter is somebody who I'm also a big fan of. I've worked on another of her scripts a little while ago. You know, we had an opportunity on that, and we jumped on it. And we've seen, we saw the first cut about about two weeks ago now. And it was a really good first cut. No, no, no big movie stars in it, but that movie's just good. And then there's a couple other things that I don't think I'm really allowed to talk about yet because we haven't formally announced them and the directors are being very cautious about how and when they kind of enter the public eye. But yeah, really proud of that. And then some larger scale things that we're talking to Ken about. We have a new film by Nacho Vigalondo that is just being finished right now. The guy who made Time Crimes and Colossal. And we have a new film by Babak and Vari that is in post right now. We have... Wow. A sci-fi feature that's being directed by Flying Lotus, the musician, and has Neil Blomkamp as an EP. That is very close to completion. What else? We have a English-speaking debut of a Quebecois director named Maxime Giroux. Who Maxime has kind of been tapped by the by the Quebec industry as the guy who's most likely to be the next Denis Villeneuve, and that includes Denis Villeneuve himself saying that Denis actually helped us with the casting process on this film because he's a fan of Maxime. You know, really, really smart kind of character-driven chase thriller, crime thriller set against the backdrop of like rodeo culture and the Alberta oil patch with like Micah Monroe and Troy Kotzer and Helen Hunt. We got Troy's first first big screen role since he won the Oscar for Coda. And he's amazing in it. Like he's born for this world. So it's, I'm really optimistic about the quality of what we have coming down right now. I Every cut we've seen of every one of these films, we're just like, yeah, we hit it. <laughs> it's like, like every, every one of the directors stepped up and really hit. We're, we're really, really pleased. That's an unreal list. Do you think, and one of the things you said about sort of nurturing directors made me think. So I watch a lot of films who won Spirit Awards maybe four or five years ago, and I go look at their IMDb and nothing. And I think like, I'm sure they had an idea. It's not like they've just gone off the face of the map and been like, nope, not getting into filmmaking. They've won Spirit Awards. But for whatever reason, maybe it was budget, maybe it was they didn't get along with whoever was producing or paying or or whatever. So do you feel that with the directors that work with XYZ that you sort of work with them on uh, as trying to help build them up as a director beyond just yeah. the film that they're making yeah yeah that, that that is definitely a thing that we think about and we, we do take a lot of pride in the fact that you tend to see both directors and producers stick with us over multiple projects that's that's on purpose and yeah there's there's a lot of stuff that maybe people don't see that can really stall out what the next film is there's a lot of reasons that stuff can go wrong you know and there's there's people that are in that zone who we've known for a long time that we're pretty actively trying to get second films up for right now who just because we we think they're great so trying to trying to get there we'll see that's awesome todd it's so good to know that you're helping filmmakers because i feel like so many other people may not necessarily have the best they have maybe short range vision 
simply because maybe it's how they keep their job, right? If you don't perform results within this quarter, this year, maybe you lose your job. So you have to focus that way. But it sounds like the way XYZ Films is set up, you're able to invest long-term and think about the next five, 10 years rather than just thinking about, hey, what's on the release schedule this year? So yeah, we we really try to do that. That's why, I mean, we launched a management arm of the company a couple of years back. And that's that's a lot of the thinking behind that is just making sure it's like, Let's let's work with people long term and try to be smart about those relationships and help them help them grow in ways that are, you know, leading them, leading them to the sort of work that they want to do and working on the scale that they want to be working at, but without giving up their creative control, without giving up their their voice and their soul in the process. Awesome. So this is an indie filmmakers podcast. Try to highlight people's work who may not be known as well. So it could be a film that you have coming out or that somebody could see, but is there any sort of indie filmmaker that you wish more people knew about? I am going to point people to somebody who we're actively trying to get a debut feature made right now. And they're in the process of kind of doing their funding applications, but it's a Norwegian guy named Frederick Hanna. And... As, as in the festival world, I programmed a bunch of his shorts through the years, and we got to know each other. But Frederick did a short film that was on the festival circuit last year, and it won an award as the best European genre short film of the year. That short is called From Beyond. You can find it online. My basic pitch on that short is, imagine if the bastard love child of Gaspar Noé and Harmony Kareen made an alien invasion. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's what From Beyond is. And the feature that he's developing and, and working on right now is is an expansion of From Beyond. I've read the script. It's amazing. I would I would encourage people to look up Fred Hanna. He's great. Wow. So this has been amazing. I've learned so much in this last hour about how film, how you choose the films, your background, how things at XYZ work. It's been so much fun talking with you, Todd. And Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been fantastic. I learned so much. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a good time. Thanks for listening to the First Time Go podcast. The goal is to make life a little easier for independent creators. So if you're with me for that, please give the podcast a five-star review wherever you download your podcast. It's free and helps expand the reach for the creators on the show. Expanded membership is available through Directors Club. You get access to season one, early episodes when available, and other subscription benefits. Sign up now through Red Circle. The link is in the show notes. Check out the podcast YouTube channel if you'd like to watch a select number of episodes of the podcast and the indie film highlight posted every Sunday. Thanks again for listening and helping creators get their first time go. Go.